0: again, and welcome back to Principles of Environmental Toxicology. My name is Greg Muller, the instructor for the course. Well, today's lecture, Target Organ Toxicology, what we're going to try to do is explore an array of targets for specific and general types of toxicosis. Many of us, just in terms of our previous exposure to uh, the media representations and perhaps in biology classes, have heard some of the terminology that we'll talk about in today's lecture. Uh, For example, one of those terms is neurotoxicity or neurotoxic agents. Uh, We have a history in terms of the military history uh, across the globe of the potential or actual use of neurotoxic agents uh, in chemical warfare. Uh, These highly potent uh, chemicals uh, used in anger, used in hate to achieve a particular military or social uh, objective, unfortunately. We've also heard about, for example, neurotoxic agents in uh, our discussions about pesticides. A broad category of uh, pesticides, of insecticides, the organophosphorus uh, insecticides and the N-methylcarbamates are neurotoxic agents. Uh, they function in a way to inhibit uh, the, uh, the transport of uh, various uh, uh, neurochemicals. Uh, uh, What we're going to try to do today is talk about uh, toxicology from the point of view of target organs uh, that may be impacted by these chemical compounds. Our learning objectives here today, what I'd like you to do is be able to define target organ toxicity. Uh, in in a broad way. We'll try to as well have you explain the basis for the specificity of organ toxicity, Uh, some of the uh, dominant factors in human physiology that will enable or accelerate uh, specific organ toxicity. And one of these, for example, is blood flow to that specific organ. If, in fact, we have a blood-borne toxicant uh, from a, a route of primary absorption, Those organs that are getting higher concentrations because of the higher blood flow of that organ have the potential for enhanced target toxicity. We'll try to contrast some of the different toxicity mechanisms for a range of target organ toxicities, including hemotoxicity associated with blood, hepatotoxicity associated with your liver, nephrotoxicity associated with kidneys, and then domotoxicity, a skin irritation. Many of those of us have experienced that if we have a particular chemical sensitivity. And also pulmonary toxicity associated with respiratory toxicosis. Now, f- In terms of uh, further learning objectives, we will try as well to describe some of the examples of target organ uh, toxicity, and we'll do this through case studies and specific uh, slides, for example, of cellular destruction associated with specific tissues. We'll try to discuss some of the clinical characteristic evaluative procedures that, uh, in a clinical setting, we use to determine toxicity in various target organs. I'd like you also to be able to explain the concept of oxidative stress. Uh, We're going to try to have you demonstrate that you understand the action of antioxidant enzymes and redox cycling compounds. Uh, Oxidative stress isn't necessarily classified as a toxic target organ toxicity, but it is a broadly based toxic manifestation uh, that is associated with many sorts of clinical endpoints. This is as good a place as any to discuss that particular presentation of toxicosis. We'll try to also uh, explore neurotoxicity because of its importance in neurological development, its importance in terms of uh, uh, potential interactions uh, and uh, the disabling potential of this particular uh, route of toxicosis. So I'd like you to be able to examine the molecular pathways of cholinesterase uh, inhibition in a discussion of neurotoxicity. Now in terms of target organ toxicity, we can best describe that in a generic way as the adverse effects or disease states that are manifested in specific organs of the body associated with toxicosis. We find that high cardiac output uh, to a particular organ or organelle uh, will yield the potential for higher exposure and therefore the potential for uh, a larger amount of toxic end effect. Uh, The organs uh, that we'll talk about each have specialized tissues and specialized cells. Because of this, they have uh, specific receptors that might be reactive, uh, transport phenomena-specific actions or reactions that are required, and our target organ toxicants actually can have selective toxicity towards those modes of uh, physiology and biochemistry that are important for that particular organ or organelle. We'll find that uh, we have on these various organ types differentiated cellular processes and receptors, and these will key into the specific potential chemical reactivity that we might have in a target organ toxicity. We find that various toxicants and their metabolites may have uh, specific reactive pathways. In other words, a primary per parent toxic compound may have a different target organ effect than its metabolite due to the structural chemical change associated with biotransformation. One of the things we need to understand is that toxicants do not necessarily affect all organs to the same extent. Uh, it may have several different sites of action and several target organs. And so we may refer to something as a nephrotoxin, but at the same time, that toxicant may have a general toxicosis or general reactivity to multiple organs. We also have to be very uh, mindful that multitoxicant exposure may target the same organ. And so this is essentially a buildup of potential end effects uh, through multiple exposures of different compounds. Uh, We can find, for example, in endocrine disruption that there's additive effects. Different chemicals, uh, wildly different perhaps even in their chemical function and structure, may have the same sort of receptor endpoints in terms of endocrine disruption. Uh, We find also in an examination of target organ toxicity that the target organ may not be the site for storage. And so we might have storage and uh, systemic distribution of the toxicant, but the site of action, the site of toxicity may be, uh, for example, hepatotoxicity, uh, toxicity of the liver. Various toxicokinetic processes will help determine uh, the concentrations uh, that present at different organs toxicokinetic processes coupled with uh, recirculation or circulation as well as exposure via blood flow and high blood mm-hmm. flow to specific organs will enable target organ toxicity. One of the ways to examine uh, blood flow is to look at the resting cardiac output. This particular graphic uh, is for a 63 kilogram male. Uh, On the y-axis we have 0 to 100% of the whole body cardiac output and these bar graphs represent uh, uh, essentially a generic or average sort of blood flow in a resting uh, adult male. What we see is this 27.8. This is the uh, highest level of cardiac output to a specific organ. This particular organ is the liver. In past presentations we've alluded to the fact that the high blood flow first pass effects is important because the liver bioprocesses uh, many of our uh, nutrients uh, uh, these uh, products of uh, initial digestion that are required in terms of energy uh, in terms of biosynthesis of more complex molecules for the development of the organism. The kidney at 23% also has significant blood flow of the brain at 14% and so you can see these uh, three organs uh, have specific cardiac outputs that enable them to not only receive and process nutrients but also to consume in the case of the brain and for example blood sugar and, and oxygen uh, to consume those uh, uh, reactants in terms of normal physiological function. Uh, interestingly enough in terms of uh, how this changes uh, an adult in exercise uh, this skeletal muscle uh, cardiac output here at rest about 16% can jump to as high as 60% of blood flow in terms of uh, uh, very vigorous uh, athletic uh, uh, activity. Another way to look at uh, this is not from cardiac output, from the actual resting blood flow in milliliters per minute. Uh, when we look at this in terms of the whole body blood flow, we get about 5.4 liters per minute. Uh, so the maximum blood flow for the whole whole body and again on a uh, uh, flow basis uh, what we find is that about 1500 milliliters per minute, 1.5 liters per minute passes through your liver. This is a substantial amount of your overall blood capacity on a very rapid basis. And so the blood flow going to these specific organs parallels the cardiac output uh, on a quantitative basis, Uh, kidney at uh, 1,260 milliliters per minute, the brain at 750 milliliters per minute. And so these determine uh, if, in fact, we've got circulating toxicants, which organs uh, will be presented with those particular toxicants, uh, obviously, we have blood flow to all of our organs at some level or another, but more rapid, more quantitative flow uh, has the potential on a quantitative mass development basis to present that, but also respect that the liver as the primary organ for biotransformation in terms of the survival of species has the ability to detoxify toxicants. And so from a survival evolutionary point of view, uh, uh, we probably are best served by having uh, our blood flow uh, go to our liver. We need also to kind of understand uh, some of the major blood circulation pathways in terms of uh, uh, how blood is presented uh, to the uh, various organs, uh, the lungs, the uh, uh, liver, uh, the kidneys, and the gastrointestinal tract and also to uh, aid in not only absorption, but elimination of metabolic byproducts. This uh, cartoon, uh, again, this is not a physiology class, but from an introductory perspective, should give you a roadmap of uh, how blood circulates. Uh, What we're primarily concerned in terms of first pass effects is uh, the uh, vascularization uh, and transport of uh, digested nutrients uh, from the gastrointestinal tract up to the liver via the portal vein. This is a primary process. This plus the pulmonary uh, uh, blood flow allows the liver to have this maximal sort of blood flow in terms of its uh, position of dominance uh, in terms of the circulation of blood in the human body. Well, let's start off in a discussion of all of our target organ uh, toxicities, and our first is hemotoxicity, and this has to do with toxicity affecting blood cell components. Uh, The blood cell components include the erythrocytes, or the red blood cells, the leukocytes, these uh, white blood cells uh, that have uh, several different functions, including immune functions, and the thrombocytes, another major category of blood cells, uh, and these are important in terms of clotting function. Uh, We find that hemotoxicity occurs when the number or the function of these blood cells is impaired by a toxicosis. So the number, uh, I'm sorry, the function of cells uh, can get changed or damaged when we have exposure to various toxicants. For example, we've talked about the ability of nitrate and nitrite to actually oxidize ferric iron in hemoglobin, important for oxygen transport, to um, oxidize ferrous iron to ferric iron and inhibit oxygen transport. We also have the ability of cyanide and uh, um other gases or other inorganic substrates like carbon monoxide or sulfide to actually uh, inhibit the ability of iron to either transport uh, oxygen or uh, to uh, carry it off uh, in terms of uh, the ability of normal physiological functioning. Um, We also can damage uh, the blood system by changing the number of the particular blood cells. A loss of red blood cells or a decrease in the amount of blood cells uh, associated with toxicosis uh, can yield anemia. Uh, an increase in white blood cells uh, via uh, toxicosis can yield leukemia. Uh, we can also have a decrease in thrombocytes or uh, granulocytes, uh, a granulocytopenia or thrombocytopenia. This is a decrease in uh, thrombocytes or granulocytes. Uh, again, uh, sub uh, components of the red of the blood cell components. In terms of evaluation, how do we evaluate uh, uh, a, uh, a patient for hemotoxicity? We do this primarily through complete blood counts. We have normal ranges for all of the blood components. Uh, last time you did a physical, you may have had a CBC workup. On your chart, uh, there will be a count and a range in terms of a normal range. Your physician will tell you if you have a number out of that range, and perhaps uh, that's due to, for instance, uh, having uh, an infectious process where your white blood cell count might be elevated, or perhaps uh, you might have uh, familial uh, anemia due to some sort of genetic uh, defect. You can also determine uh, hemotoxicity by a a number of physical uh, analyses, uh, such as arterial blood gases. Arterial blood gas will uh, tell uh, the clinician whether or not your oxygen transport is up to par. And we can also directly take a look at either the toxicants or the metabolites, typically in plasma, uh, as a uh, blood uh, carrier. This is a short discussion of a case study, and this is met hemoglobinemia, which is the uh, oxidation uh, from uh, nitrite of ferrous iron to ferric iron in uh, hemoglobin. This is an interesting case. This was in uh, 2002 in Mortality Morbidity Weekly Report for the CDC. This was in Yonkers, New York, and uh, what happened was a a household of uh, Middle Eastern adults uh, in uh, Yonkers, and three men aged 40, 43, and 44, and two women 60 and 29, uh, they reported symptoms of dizziness, lightheadedness, and they were cyanotic uh, in terms of uh, uh, starting to turn uh, blue uh, because of oxygen transport problems uh, after sharing a meal. Uh, When they presented, uh, they were vomiting. Uh, Someone who was also in the household who did not eat the meal uh, was asymptomatic. Uh, They found a younger woman unresponsive. The others were uh, awake and alert. There was uh, progressive respiratory distress in this one young woman, loss of consciousness. She was intubated, uh, which aids in uh, respiratory relief. Uh, There were seizures in the uh, older woman. At the emergency department, uh, they were cyanotic. They had oxygen saturation levels uh, that were uh, 72 to 96%. Uh, normal was greater than 92%. Um, the blood that was drawn uh, from them was described as black-colored. Uh, there was an empiric therapy uh, delivered. The clinicians, the emergency treatment, suspected uh, uh, poisoning uh, after consultation with the poisoning control center. Uh, the therapy for methemoglobinemia is uh, an a injection of methylene blue. Uh, methylene blue, the same uh, chemical that you use as a dye in some freshman chemistry experiments. Uh, subsequently, the follow-up analysis. And this methylene blue acts as a reducing agent uh, to help reverse the nitrate toxicosis. Um, what happened uh, in terms of follow-up clinical analysis is that they had extremely high methemoglobin levels. Again, this is the hemoglobin with ferric iron, uh, 21 to 87% methemoglobin. The normal is 1% to 3% in this particular case. Uh, after about 10 or 15 minutes of uh, administration of the antidote, the methylene blue, the cyanosis resolved and oxygenation improves. so this is a rapid-acting antidote. Uh, Three men became asymptomatic after therapy, and the two women uh, which had uh, more advanced uh, uh, health problems associated with this exposure actually uh, required uh, ventilation, intubation, and respiratory support, Um, and uh, it pretty much uh, took them a couple of days uh, to resolve this. Uh, In terms of the follow-up disease investigation, uh, they found that uh, someone had been using sodium nitrite, which is a curing reagent used in meat preparation, and it was put into a bag that had been marked uh, iodized table salt, uh, mislabeling episode causing a significant toxicosis and uh, a potential lethality in this case uh, to several people. Our next uh, target organ, toxicity, is uh, a hepatotoxicity. Uh, Our liver, as we've said several times in here, is a very functionally important uh, organ for life processes, Uh, these primarily being biosynthesis and nutrient metabolism. It's the most important organ that we have in terms of toxicology for detoxification and biotransformation. This is where a lot of it happens. Uh, It's the primary site for metabolism, and we use isolated hepatocytes to study chemical biotransformation in terms of a study of metabolism of various toxicants. We have in the liver a high cardiac output, and therefore we have these first-pass effects from the portal vein, It's important as well to consider the fact that there is a recirculation. This organ is so important in biosynthesis that we want to ensure uh, via uh, enteropatic recirculation, that any nutrients that are available via the diet, uh, via normal sorts of uh, uh, life-sustaining uh, requirements, are actually presented and reused and used in high efficiency, and that's probably the, the evolutionary strategy of enteropatic recirculation. But we also note that primary toxicants and metabolites can be also recirculated. This slide uh, gives you a macro analysis. This is a cross section of the diseased liver. Uh, this actually is a bovine liver, uh, typical uh, of what you see uh, if you've ever seen liver uh, in in the market or in the butcher shop. Uh, you notice that it is typically uniform, kind of muddy red in color. Uh, this uh, diseased liver uh, is anything but. Uh, it shows signs of infarction or decreased blood flow, and so you see a light pinking of uh, the tissue here in the center part uh, from decreased blood flow. You can even see some white tissue. Uh, You can see necrosis uh, where, in fact, uh, cells have broken down and there's uh, clots uh, forming, and you can see hemorrhage in terms of the potential uh, aspect of uh, leakage of some of the blood vessels uh, within this relatively uniform tissue that has a tremendous amount of uh, blood flow passing through it. If we take a look at a microscopic representation, a histological representation of liver tissue, uh liver is uh, made up of these repeating segments of of uh, lobules. Each lobule is, in fact, a uh, little biofactory. Uh, it has blood transport. It has connections to the portal vein. It has hepatic artery in terms of uh, passage of blood into the tissue and then out of the tissue. And as well, we also have a third transport, and these are bile ducts, and bile is actually uh, made by the liver hepatocytes and transported uh, via the bile duct uh, to the bile, uh, uh, to the gallbladder and to the bile duct for transport back into the gastrointestinal tract. Um, these uh, hepatocytes are arranged in these lobules. Each one has the ability uh, to do all of the metabolism that we have talked about in terms of phase one and phase two biotransformations. Now in terms of hepatotoxicity, if we look at the liver not for what it can do in a positive way but perhaps how we can damage it through toxicity, there are primary modes of toxicity. We can have cytotoxic effects, things like lipid peroxidation, and this is an oxidative stress reaction from a reactive, uh, pr- typically uh, free radical process. When we have lipid peroxidation, we can have the impact of breaking the cell membrane. When we break the cell membrane, we destroy uh, the potential of that cell to have its normal physiological processes. Uh, and we have leakage of cellular components, sometimes very bioactive, into the general organ. We can have direct necrosis, uh, tissue death, cellular death. Uh, Sometimes this can be localized. Sometimes this can be uh, fairly substantial in terms of the range and toxicity uh, of the particular exposure. We can have cirrhosis, a scarring, a buildup of scarring tissue. If we have repeated necrosis, uh, development of fibrosis, uh, these sorts of fibroid uh, materials are not uh, uh, tissues that can that function like normal uh, liver tissue, and sometimes they can actually block flow. Uh, they can be cholestatic, blocking the uh, flow of uh, the uh, bile. Uh, in terms of buildup of of these uh, 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 non-vascularized tissues, these scar tissues. Uh, In certain conditions, such as alcohol, we can also develop fatty liver, again, interrupting normal uh, biological function of this most important uh, of organs. Uh, The cholestatic uh, aspects, uh, these can be uh, interrupted uh, flow of bile. Um, This can be from tissue damage and scarring. Uh, It can also be the development of uh, stones, uh, gallstones, and and various uh, calcium-based deposits that actually physically obstruct the various bile pathways within uh, the liver and in the bile duct. There are several function liver function indicators um, in your last physical in your blood analysis. You probably looked uh, had had your uh, physician um, probably looked or surveyed for several liver enzymes. Liver enzymes belong in the liver, not in the general blood supply. There's a normal range. If you exceed that normal range, typically that's an indicator of hepatotoxicity at some degree or another. Uh, what that means is the cells of your liver are being damaged. The enzymes that are within your hepatocytes are being released into general blood flow, and this is diagnostic of some sort of liver problem. There can also be gross tissue effects to, uh, the liver is one organ. we I can actually do a, a needle biopsy. Uh, not a comfortable, uh, very invasive procedure, but this is where a needle is actually inserted into your abdomen. It's a... That's a, uh, not particularly, uh, comfortable, uh, assay, I'm sure. And this particular needle, a fairly fat one, has the ability to sample a bit of your lung, your liver tissue and pull it out for microscopic examination. Uh, this is where uh, they would examine for fibrous um, uh, tissues, uh, cirrhosis or fatty tissues, uh, cellular damage to give you kind of a diagnostic of hepatotoxicity. Now, that liver is a regenerable organ. As getting the primary toxic burden from our diets in terms of our exposure, you would have to imagine that as a frontline defense, uh, there's a certain amount of inherent danger and inherent toxicosis to the cells in the liver. So the liver has a remarkable regenerating ability, the most regenerable organ in your body uh, because of this onslaught of normal natural uh, exogenous compounds uh, that come to us through our diet, through environmental exposures, uh, through occupational exposures. We're going to do a quick focus area here because several times during the course I've referred to oxidative stress and, and also the importance of antioxidants in your diet. What we'll do here in this small side bar segment is talk about this important area and perhaps with the bottom line result of uh, remembering what your mom told you about eating your fruits and vegetables as important sources of antioxidants in your diet. What we find is that all aerobes, air breathers like you and me, we uh, breathe air and in our respiratory processes we actually generate free radicals. So this is a normal part of our function, our respiratory function. In a certain sense, uh, uh, what is combustion other than the combining of carbon materials with oxygen and in a certain sense our physiology is a controlled combustion in as a respiratory byproduct we create superoxide which is an oxygen free radical we'll see that uh, normal oxidant or antioxidant enzyme system actually detoxifies these free radicals and as it in as as it's uh, I- interesting to to note uh, that our antioxidant enzymes are inducible uh, they're inducible uh, via for example training and exercise a marathon runner will have a higher level of respiratory function than perhaps many of us. Uh, This individual will need to process more uh, oxygen. Uh, In physiology terms, this individual will have a high VO2 max or volume of oxygen that they can consume and process because of their training and because of their genetics and their physiology. Uh, these inducible antioxidant enzymes include catalase, an iron-based enzyme, superoxide dismutase, SOD, often a zinc or manganese-based enzyme, And glutathione peroxidase, peroxidase, uh, which is a selenium-based enzyme system. All of these important uh, parts of this antioxidant, this inducible antioxidant enzyme system uh, that uh, allows for proper respiratory physiology. What we find, though, is that, uh, we can be exposed to a class of compounds referred to as redox cycling compounds. And when I say redox cycling, think of the Energizer Bunny commercial and a rechargeable battery. uh, A battery that can take on a charge but also discharge. Uh, and in fact, these redox cycling compounds are those sorts of compounds. They can be readily oxidized and subsequently reduced by normal biochemical processes. Uh, This can lead to radical formation, Uh, it's a rechargeable cycle and so redox cycling compounds are typically not good compounds to be exposed to. Uh, Some of the toxic endpoints of greatest concern with redox cycling compounds and oxidative stress are things like radical formation leading to lipid peroxidation. And because we have very reactive chemicals running around in oxidative stress cycling, uh, we can have, for example, DNA strand breaks among other toxic endpoints. Typically, these redox cycling compounds are highly polar. They have, uh, in their nature, the ability to be oxidized by uh, oxygen O2. They also have the ability to be reduced by the flavin enzyme FAD. Uh, for example, a couple of chemicals in that category are paraquat, a uh, 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 herbicide uh, that's actively used, uh, for example, in cotton production, nitroaromatics of various kinds, chelated metals, uh, zinc, for example, is one of them. These can actually act as redox cycling compounds. Some examples of the reactive oxygen species and the reactive nitrogen species that are produced in re- by redox cycling compounds as secondary effects. Uh, include superoxide in terms of the ROSs, the reactive oxygen species. Uh, we can find production of hydroxyl radicals, very, very reactive, uh, uh, high uh, oxidative potential, uh, reactive products. We can also, f- uh, generate peroxyl or alkoxyl, uh, free radicals. In terms of reactive nitrogen species, these are typically the oxides of nitrogen. Uh, Nitrous oxide, nitric oxides are uh, the two most prevalent. For those of you that have studied any immunology, know that in fact our physiology, we will use uh, nitric oxides uh, as uh, a part of immune function and phagocytosis uh, in terms of uh, battling various infectious agents. So where do these radical species that we're exposed to come from? Uh, Primarily exposure is through breathing of oxygen. Uh, Again, because we are controlled internal combustion in our respiratory physiology, we have the ability to adapt and control this. But we also can be exposed to free radicals from UV radiation, uh, from various infectious processes, uh, from various oxidants and redox cycling compounds that can be found in our food or in environmental exposure. Free radicals, if you remember from freshman chemistry and perhaps your organic chemistry, they're highly reactive. Uh, they can initiate chain reactions. Uh, and this chain reaction has a lot to do with finding electron-rich molecules. And so these are electrophilic reactions, because a free radical has an unpaired electron. This is a high energy state. It is seeking to find lower energy states, so it is highly reactive. This reactivity can lead to damage of cells, uh, and uh, not only in cells, but some of the biomolecules, including the molecules of life and DNA. Damaged DNA is obviously not good DNA in terms of its potential for carcinogenesis, its potential for mutagenesis. There is a f- uh, some aspect of free radicals that it's a factor in degenerative disease. Uh, some folks have characterized aging process as uh, us essentially succumbing to uh, free radical and oxidative exposure uh, throughout our entire life. Uh, that's why uh, there have been st- tremendous number of diet and nutrition studies associated with uh, consuming uh, antioxidants in terms of a diet rich in fruits and vegetables and naturally occurring uh, chemicals in those uh, uh, plants uh, and as well as uh, antioxidants that are consumed in terms of uh, vitamin supplements. Some of these uh, antioxidants can perform the function of free radical scavengers. Vitamin C and beta-carotene will directly quench reactive oxygen. Vitamin E and beta-carotene can break these free radical chain reactions. Selenium uh, in selenium glutathione peroxidase uh, will quench peroxides, and we'll see how that works. There are some beneficial oxidative processes. I don't want you to go away thinking that oxidation is a bad thing. Uh, In fact, it's required for necessary life processes. We use it for chemotaxis or the chemical communication uh, of cells with uh, immunological functions. Uh, The process of phagocytosis uh, actually uses it to kill off infectious organisms. Oxidative processes are also involved in triggering of various clotting mechanisms and for the programmed cell death, referred to as apoptosis. In terms of the mechanism of action of ox, uh, antioxidants, it typically we find they decrease these reactive oxygen substances and reactive nitrogen substances uh, from forming. We find that they can bind uh, various redox cycling metal ions, They can scavenge the precursors and the actual oxidizing and uh, uh, reactive oxygen and reactive nitrogen species. Um, It can actually also help form these uh, adaptive antioxidant enzymes that we use in the response, the antioxidant response uh, to the potential for uh, these uh, response to oxidating species. What we find is that uh, some of these antioxidants assist in the repair of oxidative damage uh, to various biomolecules, uh, and it also can have a secondary effect of just enhancing the repair enzymes that are necessary to clean up the damage of oxidation. Now this complex graphic uh, is going to require a little bit of study. Hopefully online you can uh, blow this up in the slides to see uh, this. This pathway is the complete uh, uh, representation or a complete representation of oxidative stress. Uh, I talked about uh, this battery, the redox cycle here, where we have a parent compound and a radical metabolite, for example, but it's cycling through here. Uh, It's actually uh, um, releasing an electron on the uh, oxidation side, and it's gaining an electron on the reduction side over here with FAD and the flavin enzyme. In a direct reactivity, uh, some of these reoxycycline compounds can create a free radical metabolite that can have direct covalent binding to nucleic acids or covalent binding to various proteins and potentially uh, enzyme inactivation. Um, What we can also find is that uh, through this normal redox cycling process, we do create superoxide or the oxygen-free radical. We do have a system, an antioxidant enzyme system, to manage uh, superoxide. Uh, It starts off with superoxide dismutase, which actually strips off that oxygen. It does, however, create peroxide as a byproduct Peroxide is still a relatively strong oxidant, uh, very toxic on a cellular basis. Uh, We also have the ability up here to have catalase act directly on superoxide. Catalase uh, can actually, or iron can uh, actually um, uh, have a hydroxyl free radical uh, as an end product. This free radical can have toxic endpoints of DNA strand breaks, uh, lipid peroxidation, and enzyme inactivation. Uh, peroxide can be acted on by catalase and glutathione peroxidase to actually uh, reduce that uh, down to water as a byproduct. And so this is our antioxidant enzyme cycle. It's two steps typically, superoxide dismutase to take superoxide, Uh, and turn it into peroxide. Peroxide is then acted on by glutathione peroxidase or catalase to produce water. Stepwise deactivation of these very uh, reactive oxidants. As I said, some of the endpoints of oxidative stress that we need to be concerned about, lipid peroxidation, DNA strand breaks, enzyme inactivation, various covalent binding of molecules, to nucleic acids uh, and potential uh, problem associated with these DNA adducts, uh, as well covalent binding to various proteins that have necessary physical, biophysical activity. In terms of this enzymatic response and this inducible enzymatic response, uh, when you think about it, uh, think about a bird uh, that is flying in migration uh, hundreds if not thousands of miles uh, and how its physiology needs to be able to respond to a high energy output uh, and uh, bioprocessing of uh, respiratory physiology in uh, oxygen and the ability to essentially put the fire out that's initiated by respiratory processes, these animals have to have very good antioxidant enzymatic response to free radical formation. So we have these SODs, in this case, manganese superoxide, manganese superoxide dismutase, uh, the production of a uh, peroxide and selenium glutathione peroxidase. Uh, This is an important... This is the reason why uh, selenium is a required trace element in the human diet, is primarily through the production of selenium glutathione peroxidase as well as some other selenoproteins. Our next uh, uh, examination in terms of target organ toxicity will be nephrotoxicity. Remembering uh, from our our previous discussions in terms of biotransformation and elimination that there are three major processes of the kidney, and they include the physical filtration, glomular filtration. We then uh, follow up in the uh, proximal tubules with tubular reabsorption, and then we finally have tubular secretion where we have this balancing of fluids such that the kidney uh, filtrate uh, is 99% reabsorbed uh, back into the body. Now obviously with this uh, orchestration of processes we have potential for toxic effects at each one of those levels of process. Uh, we can damage the porosity uh, of the uh, glomerulus in terms of its filtration ability. When we damage those pores, they start out at 40 angstroms. If they get larger, what happens is larger molecules can pass through uh, into the place they uh, shouldn't be passing through because larger molecules will not cross membranes and membranes in terms of reabsorption and secretion processes. Uh, It will change uh, osmotic uh, pressures in terms of uh, dissolved solutes uh, that might be in there. We can actually uh, start having a substantial amount of macromolecules, uh, protein urea, protein appearing in your urine, hemoglobin appearing in your urine from various uh, toxic damages. We can have modification of tubular reabsorption, uh, and so uh, we will uh, end up with a water imbalance, uh, electrolyte or nutrient loss, Uh, because that will not be uh, reabsorbed, and we can lose active transport of uh, nutrients and ions, such as potassium, across these membranes. Now, in terms of normal kidney histology, um, if you remember in our representations, uh, this is two-dimensional representations. You can see uh, various glomerulus uh, representation, cross-sections, these filtration. But these proximal uh, tubules, uh, they look like they should in terms of being uh, essentially uh, fire hoses uh, uh, on a microscopic basis. Uh, there's a lining and uh, a uh, area inside, so we have a, a representation of these tubules as that, uh, a tube. Uh, when we cut them and they happen to be kind of laying on their side, for example, loop of Henley, we might see them represented as a longest section like this, as if we were uh, cutting that cucumber lengthwise instead of crosswise. And so you get a sense that there is a tremendous amount of uh, convoluted tubules associated with uh, kidney microphysiology. In nephrotoxicity, we have several different syndromes. Uh, These are uh, diagnostic of kidney damage. We can have nephrotic syndrome, and this is a glomerular filtration injury. Uh, typically a toxicant will act uh, in an aquatic fashion uh, to uh, uh, the uh, glomerulus, uh, and typically what this will lead to is the ability for larger molecules to cross uh, into the kidney filtrate. Uh, lead toxicosis, for example, uh, will have this particular action, uh, yielding protein in the urine because of uh, nephrotic syndrome. We also have nephrotic syndrome. This also is a glomular filtration injury. Uh, this is diagnostic. Uh, there's very close similarity between these two syndromes. Uh, in this particular case, we find hemoglobin actually can pass uh, into the kidney filtrate. We can also damage uh, the various tubes uh, that uh, are a part of the nephron. Uh, we have a condition called ATN or acute tubular necrosis. Uh, This yields uh, acute renal failure because if the glomerulus is filtering out uh, this very high amount of filtrate, 99%, uh, uh, but yet uh, it isn't being returned uh, through uh, the uh, tubular reabsorption. Uh, what happens is you end up with a fluid imbalance. Uh, this acute renal failure uh, can be uh, not only acutely toxic but uh, potentially lethal in a fairly short amount of time because of the buildup of metabolic byproducts. We can also have obstructive uh, uh, tubular reabsorption effects uh, in terms of uh, transport and damage uh, to all of these membranes and obstructive uropathies where we actually have calcifications, kidney stones. uh, Hopefully uh, none of you ever have to go through that. Uh, I never have, but knowing people who have this is not a fun event to have. Uh, These uh, particular uh, calcifications are physical uh, uh, disruptions of fluid flow, uh, typically uh, more painful than they are uh, damaging in terms of overall fluid flow because they occur in one part of the kidney and there is compensation either by your other kidney or other parts of your kidney. In terms of uh, one of our neuropathies, Toxic acute tubular uh, necrosis is illustrated in this particular uh, histograph. If you remember, we've got the glomerulus. This is a normal-looking glomerulus, but the proximal tubules have epithelial necrosis and uh, an obliterated lumen or the outside uh, uh, tubing or piping. Uh, What was represented in the first histogram, uh, you saw these as pipes, Uh, you now see uh, no uh, evacuated space in the center. These aren't functioning as pipes, in a certain sense these are clogged pipes. Uh, This is uh, not a good thing in terms of fluid flow in a nephron. Kidney function indicators, uh, we can do in a clinical diagnostic series uh, some uh, analyses for uh, kidney function to see if in fact uh, you have uh, a, uh, a kidney toxicity. Uh, one of the uh, ways to do this is to examine glomular filtration rate, and we can do that by looking at uh, various aspects of filtration of uh, known and administered uh, uh, chemicals and biochemicals. One of these is uh, paraminohipyrotic acid, or PAH, uh PAH is cleared uh in terms of um, uh renal clearance uh, by the uh and secreted uh, from the filtrate completely back into the blood uh, when we find PAH in the urine, we know we are not getting uh, tubular secretion uh, back into it. Uh, if an individual is dosed uh, with a higher level of PAH, uh, this is a good assay to see, in fact, if that PAH is cleared or not. Um, we can also look at... Um, uh, removal of serum waste products that is a part of normal kidney function. BUN is blood urea nitrogen. That might show up in your, uh, annual physical, uh, blood analysis or urine analysis, excuse me. Uh, and this is an indicator of catabolism of protein. Uh, we want blood urea, uh, nitrogen uh, levels in the blood, uh, to be low, uh, but we want those, uh, to be discharged into the urine stream. We also can examine uh, creatinine uh, in terms of uh, uh, in the uh, uh, urinary stream. Uh, creatinine is a muscle metabolism byproduct. We can also examine uh, pulmonotoxicity uh, as a target organ toxicity. Pulmonotoxicity. Uh, quite often can occur very rapidly because of the rapid exchanges of uh, gas that we have. Uh, Gas exchange is critical to life and so we have to breathe Uh, and we have minutes in terms of potential toxicity here if it's a dramatic impact in terms of gas exchange. Our lungs function to have rapid exchange. They're very high surface area. They're very sensitive in terms of uh, mucosal tissues and especially to uh, toxicants that impact uh, these highly uh, uh, water-based mucous membranes. Uh, There are, because of the surface area, because of the moisture, uh, and because of uh, the rapid potential intake of toxins through respiration, uh, they are quite susceptible to damage. They can be damaged by chemical irritants, uh, various carcinogens, allergens, uh, mineral dusts, uh, such as uh, uh, asbestos and sil- silicon from, s- from uh, mineral or soil dust, silicosis, and various cytotoxic chemicals. Some of the endpoints of pulmonotoxicity can include uh, an inflammation response uh, uh edema edema f- meaning uh, passage of fluids uh from your vascular system and your capillaries across the membranes uh and perhaps uh, into uh your lung tissue uh there can be tissue necrosis for acutely cytotoxic uh uh chemicals with repeated uh, uh, inflammation, repeated infection, repeated uh, exposure to toxicants, we can develop fibrosis or carcinoma. Some of the disease manifestations of pulmonotoxicity is ARDS or adult respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, This quite often is uh, an infectious uh, uh, result of sepsis and hospitalization. Uh, It's highly lethal. Uh, Typically, it uh, develops into an acute pneumonia, fluid filling, blood filling into your lungs. Uh, Not a desirable outcome in terms of hospitalization and disease management. We can have asthma, lung cancer. We can have uh, infarcts or um, essentially loss of blood flow to various parts of our lungs. Uh, we can also have emphysema or the development of scar tissue from repeated exposure to toxicants uh, such as those presented, for example, by cigarette smoking. Uh, this slide gives you an idea. I've introduced uh, the repeated exposure by uh, these physical mineral uh, toxicants such as asbestos. Uh, asbestos is uh, it's useful or has been useful historically because it is a fibrous mineral. Its physical characteristics allowed it to be used in many industrial applications. Um, These industrial applications uh, were uh, useful for increasing the fire resistance of paints and insulation uh, because of the potential uh, of these fibers to be woven into various fabrics in terms of industrial uses. Uh, this is an asbestos fiber in lung tissue uh, on a microscopic basis. You can see that this needle-like uh, mineral has the ability to uh, reside in tissue, to be a continuous uh, irritant. It's this continuous uh, physical irritation uh, that yields uh, the respiratory syndromes that start developing various forms of cancer associated with asbestos, typically asbestos in occupational exposure. Dermotoxicity is another form of target organ toxicity, the skin being our largest organ and therefore the potential for toxicosis is high. We are exposed to many potential toxicants in our normal daily life. Uh, Quite often it's with our hands because of the types and uh, quantities of things that we touch. We can have a contact dermatitis. This isn't as much an allergy response as it is just a physical chemical response in terms of sometimes uh, yielding uh, a very uncomfortable uh, skin reaction. We can have an allergic contact dermatitis and we've introduced that allergies are the result of a sensitization to a chemical, typically a larger molecular weight chemical like a pollen protein. For those of you that have latex allergies, know that you're going to get a contact dermatitis uh, and sometimes uh, even leading to anaphylaxis uh, if you use uh, latex gloves perhaps in a laboratory uh, setting. Dermotoxicity can also present as phy- phototoxicity where because we, uh, especially in light-skinned individual, have the ability to have uh, the... Uh, ultraviolet uh, low energy ultraviolet and visible radiation from the Sun have a photochemical effect with the uh, chemicals sometimes pharmaceuticals sometimes uh, natural products that are circulating in our blood uh, near our skin uh, in light-skinned people it's blood is what gives uh, light-skinned people a pink coloration. Uh, that blood uh, can, uh, those chemicals in the blood can have a reaction in the same way that vitamin D circulating in our blood has a reaction with sunlight, a positive one, uh, in terms of vitamin D synthesis. Uh, but sometimes this uh, phototoxic reaction uh, can actually uh, enable uh, a strong dermal toxicity uh, at the site of sun exposure. Uh, we can also have intangumentary cellular effects. We've seen the demonstration, for example, of chloroacne with chlorinated hydrocarbon uh, exposure, such as dioxin exposure, uh, that we saw in some of the introductory lectures. The photo here is a phytophotodermatitis. photodermatitis Phyto-photo meaning that uh, it's an interaction of a natural product, a phytochemical. In this particular case, it's oil or bergamot, which is found in citrus products. Uh, reacting uh, with light uh, on the skin, uh, causing a uh, significant dermatitis on this particular individual's hand. Neurotoxicity is uh, going to be our final target organ toxicity that we'll talk about today. Uh, we've saved perhaps uh, one of the more evolved and one of the more important uh, target organ toxicities uh, for last. Neurotoxicity uh, impacts the neurological system. The neurological system is complex, it's made up of several components, including the CNS, or the central nervous system. The PNS, the peripheral nervous system, the central nervous system is the brain and spinal cord, as opposed to the peripheral nervous system, which is our sensory and motor control system. It's made up of neurons. The neurons uh, have a cell body. They have dendrites reaching out uh, to allow for interneuron communication. Uh, They also have axons uh, to allow for transport of neurochemicals across synaptic gaps, uh, introductory biology, if you will. Uh, We also find that the uh, neurological system is made up of glial cells, uh, which are uh, presented for structure. Some of these are astrocytes that are important in various uh, barriers, such as the blood-brain barrier, uh, oligodendrites and Schwann cells, and the myelin coating associated with uh, various neurons. Uh, there are microglia and various immune function uh, glial cells as well, a fairly complex array of uh, uh, subsystems and systems in the neurosystem. This is an illustration representation of neurons. This is, again, high school biology level. Um, And you can see that, in fact, uh, the most important part that we're dealing with, uh, obviously in terms of neurotoxicity, anywhere in the cell can be directly impacted by a chemical uh, to induce neurotoxicity. Quite often, we're dealing with chemicals that interrupt uh, neurotransmission and neurotransmitter molecules uh, across the synaptic cleft uh, associated with communication from one neuron to another. In terms of the background uh, processes uh, happening in neurons, if we look at this in a generic way, we find that uh, there's active transport of sodium out of the cells and potassium into the cells, and this does yield an electrical potential across these axonal membranes. Uh, We find that the next step is a passive reverse transport that uh, initiates a cascading depolarization down the cell. Uh, This is the charging, if you will, of a neuron. At the synapsis, we get a chemical conversion of this uh, electrical energy into chemical energy as neurotransmitters are released. And they chemically transmit this uh, depolarization to the next neuron. So this is a cascading or communicative effect. These neurotransmitters cross the synaptic cleft uh, to the receptors uh, at the next uh, neuron. Neurotoxins, in terms of their uh, target, uh, can impact uh, the sodium or potassium channels. And so we can see inhibition or stimulation both in terms of excitatory responses. Uh, We'll talk in terms of further analysis of some uh, toxins uh, such as uh, poison fish toxins or fugu toxins, how some of these neurotoxins can impact uh, uh, our excitatory or hyperstimulated response, but other toxins can actually uh, inhibit the same response. Um, Neurotoxins can have an action in terms of binding uh, neurotransmitter receptor sites. Uh, They can inhibit enzymes uh, like cholinesterase that are responsible for various neurotransmitter catabolism. In a certain sense, neurotransmission needs to be a controlled transmission. Uh, We don't want to short-circuit it. We want it to turn on when there's a pulse. We want it to turn off when there isn't a pulse. And so where there's an orchestration of uh, biochemistry at the synaptic cleft uh, and a disruption of that orchestration can yield to neurotoxic effects. Uh, In terms of a uh, one of the effects, uh, chemicals can damage this myelin sheath uh, on the exterior part of uh, a neuron. There can be various membrane or morphological damages uh, from uh, uh, various neurotoxins and chemically reactive toxicants. Uh, There can be necrosis of uh, neurological tissue. An example of necrosis of neurological tissue is in this case study, and this is uh, an equine problem uh, or a problem that occurs in equine, but it also occurs in uh, some other livestock as well. This is uh, associated with uh, consumption of a uh, toxic plant, uh, problem weed, an invasive weed, uh, in many areas uh, of the United States, uh, definitely in the Western United States. And this is yellow star thistle. Uh, those of you who are taken a hike, uh, sometimes we'll see in the spring these uh, yellow flowers on a hillside, uh, illustrated in the leftmost uh, photo of this slide. Uh, down in the bottom part uh, what happens when uh, animals that are pastured uh, where there is a significant amount of yellow star thistle uh, and if they do start consuming what uh, at least in my mind would be marginally palatable if for another reason of the thorns uh, uh, on yellow star thistle but uh, there is an intoxication that does occur. Uh, the intoxication will lead to a, uh, a necrosis of tissue. This necrosis in the frontal lobe uh, is referred to as nigro-pallidal encephalomalacia. I have an arrow drawn in here. These darkened spots in the four uh, lobes of the brain are an indicator of this particular condition. Uh, this brain degeneration yields to behavior changes. Uh, it is an irreversible condition. One of the prime vectors of neurotoxicity that we are concerned about is cholinesterase inhibition. Cholinesterase inhibition is the mode of action of many of the pesticides, the insecticides, the organophosphorus, and the N-methylcarbamates that we've introduced. Uh, In cholinesterase inhibition, we need to understand uh, the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. It's the chemical mediator that's responsible for this physiological transmission of nerve impulses across the synapse. In this cartoon, uh, I'm trying to essentially uh, uh, illustrate that, in fact, our neurological function is uh, by these neurotransmitter chemicals. Uh, we think chemistry, if you will. An important part of this transmission is uh, the enzyme acetylcholinesterase, The function of this particular enzyme is to hydrolyze the acetylcholine neurotransmitter. The active site of the acetylcholinesterase, ACHE, actually contains two subsites, and uh, these are referred to as the esteratic. It's an ester group and an anion group, Uh, and so these sites are the esteratic and the anionic. Uh, Nerve impulses, in terms of normal transmission, will release acetylcholine uh, due to the depolarization, It is rapidly destroyed by acetylcholinesterase, and it allows for a normal, controlled, propagated impulse. When we do have an interference of acetylcholinesterase, uh, this activity uh, leads to an accumulation of the neurohormone acetylcholine, and this essentially allows for a sustained uh, propagation of pulse. Uh, It's an excitatory or stimulatory response, and so... Typically you find in, in this form of neurotoxicity in the acute stage, uh, perhaps uh, uh, vesiculations, uh, high heart rates, uh, uncontrolled muscular uh, movement, uh, seizuring, those sorts of uh, impacts. I put this figure of acetylcholinesterase uh, up here. Uh, This is uh, to give you an idea of that. This particular enzyme is a very complex one, but uh, it is best reduced down in terms of looking at the activity of the active site, the receptor site, on acetylcholinesterase. We can do this diagrammatically. This shows uh, this whole molecule here, the light blue uh, half moon that I have here. Uh, the actual receptor sites, so we have the anionic site here and we have the esteratic site here with a serine uh, moiety and we have uh, acetylcholine and you can see that in normal uh, hydrolysis of acetylcholine by acetylcholinesterase enzyme, you see that in fact we've got this two-point binding at the anionic site and at the uh, ester site here uh, this binding uh, is very secure and ena- enables the hydrolysis to choline and to acetate. Uh, and so this happens uh, in terms of uh, rapid release. And so like normal, in terms of uh, normal enzymatic activity, the enzyme itself here is not consumed by this process. It actually just acts like it should as an enzyme, a uh, normal process. What we find is that we can poison this process by putting compounds in play that are reactive to those same sites in acetylcholine esterase. Uh, for example, when I'm down here in the bottom square, I put the organophosphate insecticide, parathion. Uh, parathion uh, is uh, a largely limited uh, insecticide. Uh, most uses have uh, been taken off the table in the last uh, decade or so. Uh, there might be still some special uses associated with agriculture, but not many. One of the reasons was because of its acute uh, toxicity and neurotoxicity potential. In uh, these uh, OP pesticides, these organophosphorus pesticides, typically, and and here's a case for parathione, what you find is that you've got a leaving group here, uh, you can see, uh, for parathione and a phosphate moiety here, which is the active, reactive part that is going to poison acetylcholine esterase. It does it because this phosphate moiety is reactive with the ester group on acetylcholine. Uh, as the leaving group, uh, uh, leaves, and this is, uh, the X part here, uh, you get a phosphorylation of, uh, acetylcholinesterase. This phosphorylation is largely irreversible. Uh, there is an impact here in terms of, uh, limiting the, uh, future ability of this enzyme to actually do what it needs to do. And it, essentially, its reactive sites have been now poisoned. Uh, there are antidotes uh, that can impact this, um, but sometimes these antidotes are uh, either ineffective or especially ineffective if there's been any sort of aging that has occurred in terms of time between the poisoning and time between uh, the administration of the antidote. The way we look at this uh, in, on a molecular basis, uh, we saw that, in fact, acetylcholinesterase is a fairly large complex enzyme Uh, There is a place on the molecule, a receptor site, uh, that is referred to as the gorge. Here's the uh, oxyanion hole, and here's the OP binding serine moiety uh, right here. And so this is allowing for the sites of reactivity. Uh, We can take a look at that in terms of simplifying those sites of reactivity. Again, the oxyanion hole We've got, um, in this particular case, an OP that is binding to that serine moiety, and it's actually blocking. And this gives a a two-dimensional representation that allows you at least to do a three-dimensional interpretation of the receptor site here uh, for acetylcholine on acetylcholine esterase. Once we have this OP docking, uh, we've essentially uh, uh, blocked it uh, in terms of its ability to have this reversible uh, deactivation of acetylcholine, hydrolysis of acetylcholine. Once blocked, the acetylcholine will then just hang out in the synaptic cleft and induce neurotransmission and in the excitatory response. One of the ways we can antidote, have an antidote to, to this reactivity is through a chemical called 2-PAM, that's pyridine aldoxime uh, methyl chloride. Uh, 2-PAM actually uh, can bind uh, to the phosphate moiety that has uh, reacted with cholinesterase. Uh, it presents a very strong reaction uh, and it can reverse that binding. Uh, it can cleave, uh, in this case, the neurotoxic agent from the enzyme and restore the enzyme's activity. Uh, the problem is... Uh, that typically uh, there will be some residual effects, even though uh, uh, a lethal intoxication might be reversed, uh, there will still be some neurotoxic damage uh, associated with an exposure that requires 2-PAM uh, antidote. 2-PAM is uh, an antidote uh, that is used uh, in terms of defense of uh, perhaps uh, neurotoxins that might be used in chemical warfare. We'll finish up with a quick case study. This is interesting uh, because uh, this is uh, a demonstration of uh, the plant kingdom and some uh, biologically active agents in plants in the human diet and and in uh, natural medicinals, uh, one being used as the antidote uh, for the other. This particular case study also from Mortality Morbidity Weekly This is a 1994 case uh, where uh, several members and three families were intoxicated after uh, drinking mate tea or Paraguay tea. Uh, This is a tea that's um, available in most uh, health food stores. Uh, It's got a little bit of a a caffeine-type kick uh, to it. Uh, It also has uh, some uh, natural components, some phytochemicals, uh, which can cause uh, different levels of effects. And typically also, because uh, sometimes these are harvested from natural environments, uh, toxic plants of various types uh, can be put into the mix in terms of uh, sloppy harvest, if you will. Uh, In both of these, in all these cases, the manifestations incurred within about two hours of drinking this tea This is a commercially processed and produced uh, tea, Paraguay tea, Uh, and this particular plant is native to South America. Uh, In one of the cases, a 39-year-old man and his 38-year-old wife shared a pot of tea, and within 30 minutes they actually developed acute symptoms, agitation, and flushed skin. They were transported uh, by ambulance to the emergency department, uh, they have, uh, f- they had fever, uh, dilated, non-reactive pupils, uh, dry skin, and oral mucous membranes. Bowel sounds were absent, so there was a, a definite potential for neurotoxicity. There, uh, they were able to be diagnosed uh, as uh, um, from uh, anticholinergic poisoning. Uh, based on clinical findings. Anticholinergic poisoning is not uh, cholinesterase inhibition. This is uh, a poisoning where the receptor for uh, uh, um, a uh, acetylcholine is actually blocked. There's a competitive uh, inhi- inhibition by a chemical at the receptor site uh, across the, the uh, uh, synaptic cleft. Uh, so there was in this particular tea uh, an anticholinergic compound blocking this. Uh, The treatment for this uh, individual, uh, these individuals uh, were intravenous uh, physostigmine. What's interesting about this particular chemical, it's a natural product. It's a product uh, from uh, a bean called the calamar bean uh, which comes from a plant uh, that is referred to as the doomsday plant. Uh, This uh, particular uh, plant had a uh, nefarious medicinal history because uh, it would used to be uh, used in the uh, uh, examination of prisoners to try to get them uncomfortable uh, to uh, make them uh, actually uh, talk uh, because of the potential and, and in most cases reversible poisoning associated with this. physostigmine uh, f- 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 is actually a reversible cholinesterase uh, inhibitor uh, that's retained that's uh, actually obtained from a natural plant so and the interesting part of this particular case study is uh, we have a a, a toxicant uh, from one plant a phytochemical uh coming from one plant the mate tea uh being counteracted uh by a chemical a phytochemical from another plant Well, that gives you, uh, I guess, a sense of the uh, uh, aspects of target organ toxicology that we want you to kind of have in terms of the the understanding from your readings and from some of the general, broader understandings of uh, environmental toxicology. Uh, Next time, what we'll do is uh, talk about perhaps a a special category of of endpoints, uh, and these endpoints will include carcinogenesis, teratogenesis, and mutagenesis. Until next time, we'll... See you later. Thanks so much for being here.